If you listened to part one of this series, you remember me telling the story of my sister. Well, I forgot I left out a part that I think you should know. After my uncle came by, he left a gun. Well, I stepped inside the house, put the gun on my chest, and I laid down. I fell into a dream. Then came a flashback of all the horrible things that had happened in my life. In this voice, I started hearing in my head over and over again. It won't get better, Tony. It's not gonna get better, Tony. And I saw myself take my own life. I immediately sort of jumped out of the dream, looked down at my shirt, and I was sweating. But I remembered this verse that I heard my grandmother and my pastor say often, I will not die, but live to declare the works of the Lord. It was sort of the voice that had been probably buried in all of these situations coming to surface to fight for me. And now I had a choice. Which voice will I listen to? It was not the point of choosing to live, but rather I began to separate what I had been through against what God called me to be. You see, we lived the nightmare, but we never stopped dreaming. We never stopped believing in ourselves and each other. There is a cost for our personal freedoms and it ain't cheap, it's expensive. It costs us sometimes literally everything. And maybe like you, you've been through a lot or less, but the value of our lives is the most precious and important thing that we have. Now I'm able to access my inner resource in a way that allows me to understand the things that I do, the ways that I be, that give me more degrees and ways of freedom. I've come to realize that one of the first dilemmas in our lives is learning authenticity and maintaining it against the incentives to hide or diminish who we really are. We have to ask ourselves, is my authenticity higher than the opinions around me? And it's the way that I'm living and moving in the world, working more for them or working for me. And in this decision, we can actually come to the resolution of my purpose is always above any and everything around me. I was very skeptical about therapy. I don't know if you could tell that when I first came in, but I was, I think the first real reason I was like, I, the heartbreak and agony of a first love, I was like, I can't do this alone. Yeah. And I made a deal with myself. I was like, line up, you know, three people, because I'd always heard you mm -hmm. have to see if there's a fit. There's got to be a fit. Got to be a fit. It's probably not going to be your first one. <laughs> so Where I was, was I in your list? <laughs> you were my first. I was your first. You were my first therapist appointment. And I was like, okay, here's the thing, Antonio. You don't like to drive. You got a hectic schedule. So let's already, let, let's just see the criteria. I need to be able to walk to you. I'm like, well, how am I going to get this? Am I going to, you know, get to privileging convenience over like finding the right person but I was willing to drive but when I came in and I sat down with this blonde haired lady this blonde haired lady <laughs> I was like how's this gonna work how is it gonna work <laughs> and how's she gonna know me 
How's she gonna know me? Yeah. Did you feel that? Um, I think that's always the question. I mean, I can be sitting across from another blonde-haired lady my same age, and it's still the question. Yeah. Is she gonna know me? Is she gonna see me? Yeah. Can can she see me? Can she show me parts of myself that I don't see? Yeah. And I think mine would a a step further because of culturally. You know. Can she hold my blackness? Yeah. As a white woman, in a way that says, <clears throat> we can ascribe to this higher level of humanity and seeing each other, but do you know what it means to actually be a black man now in America and the hardships that come with that? And I can't. Yeah. And I think. That's got to be the baseline, is me understanding that the best I can do is try to hold space to try to understand. Because yeah. it's what we were talking about a little bit earlier. The minute I start thinking I know, oh, well, that's just like me being a girl. Then yeah. I've lost it. And this, people, is why she is my therapist, is <laughs> <laughs> because you understand the distinction. Um, is not actually trying to reach a, a place where you like, I can hold, but I am always sensitive to, I cannot fully understand, and that allows me to actually be with you. Well, and you've been very gracious around that too, because I do try to do the work to understand what I can understand. But there's always gonna be gaps. And you know, I'm thinking about some of the conversations we've had um, during the election, um, the problematic nature of the Clintons. Yeah. You know, from, from, from my seat of privilege, that was an easy choice. But it was also that there was a history that I did not know about the complexity of it, and you were gracious enough to point me toward places where I could see and understand more deeply. Yeah, and when you say, because that's totally accurate in terms of my dilemma was, how do you choose between the two? But there was a difference um, in the candidates. And at the same time, that history personally affected my family. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of my cousins who were in the projects were the profile of a super predator. In my head, I was gonna find a black therapist and had a couple on my list. And like I mentioned in the previous episode, many of my friends had told me, you know, it can take two or three attempts before you find a match that you're comfortable with. So shop around before you say that's the one. And so I came into my initial appointments with Kelly though, way too depleted to front about all the things that I was going through. I made it real and upfront immediately that I was on a downward spiral and I needed a therapist that could sort of tap in real quick. In the back of my mind, I was wondering one thing though, this would be different for a white person. I didn't know if she could hold space for experiences she never had and not pretend to know. I've had white teachers, managers, and friends step outside of their lane and misuse or misinterpret a given experience and reach for 
the intellectual answers and theories to fill in for the cultural and racial political gaps between us. And you know what that means. I would have to do my work and her work too to teach her how to show up for me. And I did not have the energy. Kelly has been helpful in bringing accountability to the work white people have and have not done. She started connecting it to the systemic things in society and how it interfered and altered my life on a micro and macro level. Within our sessions, I saw her independently ally with other black mental health professionals, getting up to speed on the historical and current traumas. So when I speak about a trend, a disparity or a movie, she can keep up with my world like I'm forced to live in hers. I call this white work. When white people hold themselves and other white folks accountable, not for being an ally, but realizing they created racism and benefit from it and they need to proactively fix it. What is your work as a therapist to see, how do you see all of your clients and then how do you, how have you learned to see them differently based off what they bring to you? With all of my clients, I try to see the richness of the person who is showing up in the room. Mm -hmm. And to, I think my gift as a human being is a predisposition to see the best side of people. Mm -hmm. But then within that, to also hold the awareness within myself and the space within myself that I don't know your experience and my life will be richer if I can understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, for you and your particular intersectionality or, you know, my, my immigrant college student or my, my questioning teenager, you know, what is it like to walk in their shoes and how can I show them the gifts of what they are bringing both to this room and to the world? While they experience probably a level of crisis or trauma or doubt, still being able to hold and see the gift. Absolutely, yeah. And the other piece about that, Antonio, is, you know, people have said, when you're a therapist, people will say, you know, I don't know, how, how do you do the work you do? You know, you're, you're with people who are depressed or who are suicidal or who are... The work that I do is the work of being a human being. And as a fellow human being, seeing you work with your pain and your fear and to, to face it with courage and to strive for integrity helps me as a human being. I mean, I still have to go home and deal with my stuff. Right. And every day I have this gift of seeing people use humor and creativity and courage and vulnerability to step up and look the thing in the face that they are afraid of. Right. What a gift. Yeah. Let's talk about 
how we did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I told you, um, God damn it, I was like, before I came to therapy, I would have said church and my deep, deep friendships were, and probably work, were like my big three of life. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, you know, God, friends, work, rounding me out. Now therapy's like one or two. We spent our time in many different ways, but this, there's this one thing that's sort of like, I was really sort of broken in this way of just like what had happened to me in my childhood questioning could I actually be all of what I knew I was? Could I do that? Um, and I think I started out, we started off therapy really sort of digging into, I think one of the first exercises we did was sort of digging into, let's just do your family mm -hmm. history, and genealogy, right. little who did, tree. Who did you grow up with? What was that like? What were they like? What, what, what lessons did you take from that? Within my first two or three sessions, Kelly and I went through my life much like I did in the previous episode, detailing all of these inflection points starting at age five. The genealogy tree was a reintroduction to all of the characters in my story. My mom, the dad who left, Nikki, my grandmother, my first cousins, you name it. I was doing something that is fundamental to my existence, becoming an audience member to my own life. I was now in the crowd replaying each scene, seeing different angles that I'd never seen before, making connections that I'd never made. I told Kelly I had a hard life and she interrupted and with deep emotion and sadness said, no, you did not, Antonio. We have to classify what you have been through accurately so you get the truth of what you've endured. You've been living with complex trauma your entire life and you've never been treated for this ever before. It was like a patient coming to a hospital for a routine checkup and being discharged when I needed to be upgraded to a patient with ICU status. It's like you're going through life with this misdiagnosis of the lingering effects of all the things that have taken a toll on your mind, your soul and your actions and relationships. I have been disrupted and needed to be healed, but I had been forced to get back up and live like everything was okay. It was not okay and I was not okay. And for the first time I can get some true relief in knowing I wasn't crazy. We were doing that and also balancing what I described as like the ache of like getting over an ex. Well, and they, they wrap together because in what ways does this ache feel familiar and haunting and old? Yeah. You know, what parts of this are unique to the present and what parts of it harken back to Oh, when I long for somebody, that must really mean that I love them. 
And yeah. I know that because I knew that when I was three. With my dad. And he left. What did you, looking back at that time, because we started in 2015. Right. I was like, dang. I know. Three year anniversary. Okay. Um, what was going on with me in terms of what I had been through and what you found in those like first six months of us working together? I was thinking about that when I knew we were gonna have this conversation. And I think some of what you were grappling with, I think what you've been grappling with the whole way through is this process of fully becoming. How do I fully embody everything that I am? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in all of my wholeness and complexity and imperfection, how do I embrace all of that? But when we started, I think there was much more of an, a sense of how do other people see me? And is that where I get my worth? And am I destined to move through life defined by my wounds? And my sense is that over time, you have really shifted into a deeper understanding that our wounds and our strengths are completely interconnected. Yeah. And that there's this, um, I have a friend who refers to spinning straw into gold. We have mm. the ability to spin straw into gold, to take the things which are painful or difficult or inexplicable to us and turn them into something deep and rich and beautiful. And that was a hard process. I think that came by way of what do I do with this unforgiveness for Desmond, my father? Yeah. And how am I actually going to go back and renegotiate the relationships with my mom and my family? And I was having reoccurring nightmares about my mom. We were still having these childhood disagreements and arguments. And you were just tracing it back to one of the things that helped me was I was like, Kelly, I keep having this dream. You were like, what's happening in the dream? I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a child. I was a child, probably in kindergarten in Kingston Projects. And I was like, I get sick and I'm in the hospital. And my mom is there, my dad shows up and we leave. Same thing happened, but it was playing out differently in my relationship. My relationship was that my ex was having some trouble and needed me to come in. And you introduced this concept around heaven's reward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You remember that? I do. <laughs> yeah. What is that? So, yes, in the world of cognitive behavioral therapy, heaven's reward, the heaven's reward fallacy, is the belief that if I just live a good enough life, the people in my life will come around and I will be justly rewarded. And so 
one of the ways we see it manifested that you and I certainly talked about is, you know, this ex who has never appreciated me. Someday he's going to wake up and realize, oh my God, I've been such a fool. Yeah. And so we, we hold on to things that are not good for us, whether it's relationships or jobs or people, in the belief that we will be justly rewarded, that someday they will come around and they will see how good we were, how true we were, how we showed up. And the reality is some people don't. Some people don't come around. And that the element of self-sacrificing so they will come back is a fallacy. Is a fallacy. I think that was the first phase of therapy was me realizing that I had been, in some places, I was a conscious guy who was out here doing work, but also open wounds. Mm -hmm. And I was still very much responding to and living life as, um, why did this happen to me? Right. And, and that can look a couple different ways. Did I do something wrong? You know, it, am I responsible for these, this trash that gets dumped on my doorstep? Or, and it can also look like, you know, the world is not fair. And the world isn't fair. The world isn't fair. But it can look like the world is not fair and therefore I'm going to curl up in a ball and not respond. Yeah. And, and you did not do either. Yeah. We had to work a little bit with what is the other option? You know, and Viktor Frankl would say that the, the option we have is the option of how we choose to think about our circumstances. I started telling Kelly about all the dreams that I had, reoccurring dreams around my father and my mother and the relationship. But all of them had an undercurring sort of common thread to them. And we call that heaven's reward. It manifests in relationships where people decide if they will stay or leave after harm was done. And even though I'm rational enough to know that a father leaving wasn't on me, it set into motion how I would respond to breakdowns and breakups in my life. The question was, how do you treat it? Kelly and I use cognitive behavior therapy, let's call it CBT for short, to actually engage in these dreams and this concept. I rarely hold on to people even though my network is pretty expansive. You see, I love deeply. So I watch and observe for a while before I pull people into my inner circle. Most people are on the outside, the periphery, and when they leave, I rarely feel anything with their departure. I was an expert at goodbyes, which made this breakup more devastating because unlike those friendship, love doesn't ask for permission to hold on. You see, to deal with and fix this relationship, I had to go back inside of that room where that little Antonio was standing in the window of Kingston Projects waiting for his dad to come back. And I had to have a conversation with him and say, I know you're hurting, but it's gonna be okay. 
and what you didn't get at that time, now you have the access and the tools to work through it. And I think the rethinking of this was, let's go back into these situations in phase two of therapy yeah. and get probably what the pain didn't allow you to see, exactly. which is mm -hmm. people say like, oh, get the lesson and get this. But really, I was getting Antonio. I was getting pieces of me back that were there, you know, there's a little boy inside that was still crying and needed some attention. And therapy allowed me to go back. I remember one time you were just like, let's do hypnotherapy. I was like, ooh, Kelly. Now that's some real extreme stuff. But I remember you leading me through that exercise and you were just like, invite the people you want around you in this envisioning technique. Um, the people who will support you. People that will support me. Support and all of these growth. people, mm -hmm. past, present, were coming. And I think in this phase of it, I was like beginning to actually say, who you want to be? Because you're stepping out of the past and stepping out of the pain. Who do you want to be? Um, and it was so hard because there's several relapses that you go through as you try to actually become your full self. Well, part of the process, and I think this is the hardest part for, for most of us, is embracing the courage to be imperfect. That we are not going to do it perfectly. That we're going to have days where we fall back and get frustrated and feel sorry for ourselves and our courage falls short. And that's just part of it. It doesn't mean we failed. It doesn't mean that we're back where we started. Yeah. It just it just means that we're human. And humans have bad days. Bad days. One of the defining moments was I came in one day, I was like, Kelly, you're not gonna believe what happened. Which is usually how I start off. <laughs> yeah. A weekly session. <laughs> you like, man, I just laughing. saw you six days ago. <laughs> and you said the same thing. <laughs> you say the same thing every, every week. Like, I'm not, am I freaking out? What is this like? This week uh, has been unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the gym. In walks the guy that we've been doing all the work with. And I'm like, Kelly, you know, you know, he, he wants to, to say he's sorry or to, to, to say something. I'm like, I don't think this is it because what I had seen from other relationships when people had broke up and it had been tumultuous for the person that wanted to hold on versus the person that left. Because there's some, in many ways, there's the imbalance of who loves someone more and who wanted to stick it out and fight. And I was like, I did not call, I did not text, not one time cold turkey. I was like, I'm out. Like, I'm not shifting this down to um, friendship, and I'm not about to live out dysfunction in my life. And sure, that was like, oh my God, that was, because it was non-closure. Yeah, well, you were doing the work of grieving that. I mean, you were holding an appropriate boundary, but that didn't mean it didn't hurt. Yeah. Um, and now I'm just like, moving forward with you and it's just like this, but I think we did meet 
and then we showed up in your office for joint therapy. And I'm like, mm -hmm. this was wild. Unplanned life. What were you thinking at that moment in terms of being able to hold me, but also seeing someone who hurt me very bad? This is where we are now. Yeah. This is what is. So let's see what is. You know, I, I knew your story of this person, but I, I did not also know this person. So we were talking a moment ago about mirrors. I knew your mirror of what this person looked like and felt like and acted like and how, how they responded to you. But it's like a, a bit of a fresh slate when the two of you come in together and so it's it's experiencing what's coming from that person and then trying to identify whether or not there are in fact shared goals or is there ambivalence is there conflict yeah it was it was a very cathartic moment you know because the questions it was like you could hold empathy and space for both of us um and I do think this was a person that wanted to make it work, but maybe didn't have in, in that moment in time the ability to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, right? I have been talking about this relationship at the start of my therapy for months to now eventually sitting down on that mint green sofa right next to the person in front of Kelly, working through a series of uncomfortable events. And as I mentioned before, I'm an expert at goodbye, so I cut all of this off cold turkey. It had been a year without any communication, closure, or connection. I agreed to this because I had already started to separate from who I was in that relationship. I didn't know fully who I was about to become or be, but I knew for damn sure it wasn't the person he had met before. I was living into the idea that we, as a community, especially with our people, should make a commitment to enter and leave relationships whole. This work wasn't about getting back together or holding on to each other, but seeing what we had done to each other and being responsible enough to go into those scars for healing to take place and that we all should be responsible and culpable for that. There was a moment in therapy probably four or five months ago and I was telling you something and you were tearing up. And I was like, Kelly, why are you tearing up? And she says, you said, because I'm doing my own work too. What has therapy meant in terms of our relationship to you? At its very best, it's a growth process for both of us. Um, and I don't mean that in the sense that you and I are sitting here like best friends and I'm saying, well, let me tell you my stuff. But these problems that we work through are human problems. You know, when you're experiencing doubt or loss or shame 
or uncertainty. I have all those things in my life. And sometimes um, it's simply a matter of sitting with the pain that we have for being human. Mm-hmm. And other times it's really being moved by the courage and the grace of the person I'm sitting with. Yeah. That, that make no mistake, that helps me to move through my life with grace and integrity because I see it every day. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the things that I've learned from you is you would come in and we'd be talking about what you do this weekend and you were like, I went on a silent retreat. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these are three, four days. Sometimes I think it's been a week where you have just done that. What are your own, you know, regiments of taking care of yourself as you take care of so many people? And both the gift in it and responsibility, but the burden of holding other people's stuff. I do meditate daily. Um, movement is good. Um, you know, the same things everybody needs to do. I try to eat foods that nourish my body and don't weigh it down with too much sugar or sugar, fat, and salt. Um, I try to get enough sleep. The meditation creates the space in between thought and reaction. One of the things that has been really wonderful in our particular relationship is you are coming from your strong Christian faith. And while I was raised Christian, I practiced Buddhism at this point in my life. And to be able to have those conversations around how does faith support us, transform us, carry us, has been really helpful. I think it's always helpful to spend time with people who are seeking community, connection, peace, um, living a responsible life, putting a hand down and a hand up. Mm-hmm. In terms of the burden, I, I hesitate to use that word, although I understand why you chose it. What is hard about the work I do is those points in time when somebody is in a space where I can't do it for them, where um, you, know, you know that I work quite a bit with eating disorders and where I have somebody who, who, who needs residential care and they're unwilling to go, or somebody who is um, having a lot of suicidal thoughts and feelings, and we can talk about that, but ultimately that comes down to each person making a choice that my life holds value. And I can't make somebody be in that space they have to arrive there. And that is hard because I do care about my clients. Yeah. And it, it hurts when they're hurting deeply. 
because of that connection, you know, to be able to sit and hold them and then to see them. Yeah. In our community, especially the community that I come from, therapy is a luxury and a privilege, just like an amenity that you don't have. Mm -hmm. You know, the furthest that you get is probably advice from people Pastoral counseling. Pastoral counseling, Oprah, or people that are like the self-help world. But to be able to sit down with you pretty consistently. Um, if I'm in town, I'm, I'm in front of you. <clears throat> but a lot of my friends, this is, um, I would say, this is a moment where everyone's trying to actually say, how do I take care of my mental health? And seeing, you know, friends debate, is it, would it be for me, would it be not for me? How do you help people understand what therapy is and what therapy does for you? Well, therapy, doesn't look the same for any two people, first off. But I would say that the single, let's, let's start with a baseline assumption of competence, okay? That if you can get yourself to a competent therapist, then the single most important thing is, do I, have, do I feel a connection with this person? Do I feel like they like me? Do I like them? Yeah. Would I hang out with them if I had a choice? And n not every therapist thinks that way. Um, there are therapists that think of it more like a medical doctor. Like, you're, you're coming in. I have, a, I have a knowledge base. I'm going to dispense my knowledge to you, and then you're going to leave again. Those tend not to be the people I work with because I really see it that this process of you becoming you or me becoming me in my own therapy is about being fully seen and somebody holding space for you. But also, it is about finding somebody that has the particular skill set that works with the way your pain expresses itself. So in other words, if I am working with somebody who has panic attacks, then I need to know that exposure therapy and mindfulness are going to be two of the most efficacious treatments for panic attacks. And above and beyond the relationship and the basic competence that we've already talked about, it's really helpful if I actually know how to do exposure therapy with them. Mm -hmm. Okay? Or if we are talking about, and raise your hand if you know anybody who doesn't have some dysfunction in their childhood, right? okay, then chances are we have some cognitive distortions, some beliefs that we grew up with that may have kept us safe when we were a child, but don't really serve us as adults, okay? They don't help us to be as fully, fully functioning, as whole as we want to be. And so working with somebody therapeutically who understands cognitive behavioral therapy, who understands how to teach you to recognize when you're being perfectionistic or black and white in your thinking or um, you know minimizing your accomplishments and maximizing your 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 shame or your faults or 
holding yourself to one set of standards and everybody else to a, a different set of standards. You know, having a skill set that I can then teach you, you know, we're back to heaven's, heaven's fallacy, that it is incredibly useful. Yeah. So, so you need to find somebody. We all need to find somebody who is that mixture of, wow, I really, I feel safe with this person. I feel comfortable with them. And they know stuff I don't know about how to manage the problems that hang me up. Before therapy, I would behave in a couple of key ways. One way was giving more than I had in my own cup to people working relationships. You know, loaning myself out for approval and validation. One of the first things I cleared up was, Antonio, no one has the blueprint to who you are. So when you loan yourself out to other people, you make them an expert in something, in someone they didn't create. And I had to come to this fundamental conclusion. I appreciate your advice and maybe your opinions, but I don't need your permission. The next thing was I was always bracing for the next crisis. I was preoccupied with how long things would be stable before I would have to go back into crisis mode, solving the next situation. You know, my, my childhood had prepared me to deal with and create the worst case scenario. In CBT world, this is called fortune telling and catastrophizing. It's a series of thoughts and behaviors that come from poverty and not ever being able to be financially secure to have all of my needs met. This was the strain of becoming a young black patriarch, meeting the demands of life with overwhelming fear when you're going through uh, these types of distortions, you don't have the definitions and language of what's happening to you. So the only thing you do is create survival tactics and mechanism. I had to learn how to go back and remove the residue of all of these things. What I was really doing was letting go of scarcity and actually creating from abundance. Yeah. And for me, this has been a space where I have come into a self-awareness of who I am and how to actually go away from a cognitive distortion where I minimize Antonio and maximize people or things mm -hmm. of past and present or even future. I describe this space when people tell me as my own journey to self-love. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the first way I did life was this is what happened to me. The second way I did it was what can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. Which is a higher way to live. Absolutely. Because what it does is in, in, in seeing something, you can actually, what is right in front of your face is the circumstance or the situation. But if you can sort of like push the circumstance to the side and see what's behind it and pull it up, now you have a new way of seeing the situation. It doesn't remove it. It just actually allows you to see it through a, a different set of veneers. And I would say one of, the, one of the, the gifts to me of having you in my life as a constant is the reminder that part of that frame 
is, um, is spirit, is doing the soul work of um, does this move me toward my best self and my connection to God and others, or does it move me away from that? Yeah. The way I do life now as I go into to this phase of my life, this season of my life is, I chose this. Undoubtedly, this is actually the most freeing, the, you know, way that I've approached myself is that I, in some way, partnered with my source, God, and said, you need to accomplish this in the earth. Can I use you and your life to do it? And so everything from that I've been through, all of the trials, because I used to describe myself as just like, this is, how can one person sustain this much dysfunction? It was an unequal God. If you were going to do this to me, you could have just left me up there. That was my first conversation with this. Like, you brought me here just for this level of agony versus no. We sat down, we had a conversation about this. And, and you bought in. And I bought into this and yeah. said, you need that and you're not going to ever let me go through this alone. Yeah. And now I can actually say, in two ways I chose this, through actively showing up and doing my work and whatever comes that I even don't know, that I don't have to be surprised by that because in some way, if I just sit back and sit with it, there is a space of knowing and bringing up the knowing uh, to me. And in that way, there is full acceptance. I think the thing I want to be able to do now is to have a conversation with my father and be able to say like, I chose you as my father. I want to know why. And that your deficiencies in not raising me are no longer the fissure in our relationship. Um, and I think that's freeing. And I chose who I wanted to love in my life. Um, and yeah. I also think that if we, if we knew the full agreement we were making at the front end, we, we, we might balk at it. <laughs> because the, the biggest work is really hard. And and so, you know, if you're going through something, you're like, I do not see the sense in this. I do not see the purpose. Sometimes it's because it's just too big. You're, not, you're only going to be able to see it in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Year three, we're headed into year four. I just want to say thank you. It is my pleasure. There are no fairy tale endings, only the ones we create. I'm still on that mint green sofa every single week, going into each of those rooms, finding the hidden treasures in the rubble. I put it all on the table, y'all. And I know this for sure. The purpose is how we put the pieces together and then decide this one simple thing. When we're entering the door of who we really are, asking ourselves the question, 
what am I leaving behind that no longer serves me so that I can step into what God has for me? Yeah, you got it. I'm still renegotiating the relationship that I have with Antonio 